This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking to Soraya Correa, former Chief Procurement Officer of the Department of Homeland Security. Soraya just retired after a 40-year career service with the federal government. She worked with Naval Sea uh, Sea Systems Command, the General Services Administration, NASA, uh, Immigration and Naturalization Services, and the headquarters of the Department of Homeland Security. Soraya is known for many things, but she's certainly known as one of the most innovative and creative procurement leaders in the government. Uh, First, Soraya, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's a pleasure to speak with you. So let's start off with, uh, hey, can you describe your leadership style? So uh, that's interesting that you would ask that question because I, I, you know that I hate labels. No, just kidding. Um, My leadership style is one that is what it needs to be at the time. In other words, I adapt to the environment, the situation, and what's needed from me by my team. So for example, there are times in times of crisis where I do need to be a little bit more authoritative. In other words, be the decision maker, lay down the rules, how we're gonna go about doing things. That doesn't mean that I don't bring in people to the fold to advise me, to talk about you know, what our options are, et cetera. Um, but most of all, what I try to do is be a responsive leader, meaning that I'm addressing the needs of the organization, the leadership, my peers, as well as my employees. So that I'm making sure that I'm addressing all those needs, making sure that I'm uh, elevating the, the, the stature of the organization to make sure that people understand what it does, why it does what it does, and how they can be most effectively be used. So I like to say my style is an adaptive style. Uh, and I will throw in the word transformational as well, because I do believe that we, we do need to constantly seek ways to improve, to make, you know, to do things better, to do things more effectively and ensure people understand what we are doing. You've had some pretty big positions throughout the government. Are there any stories you can share about a leadership challenge and how you faced an obstacle and got through it with that adaptive style? So I I probably, you know, it's going to sound cliche, but the pandemic is probably the classic example. Um, You know, here we were in March uh, 2020 at basically at what was the height of the pandemic. A lot of our employees were already being told to go ahead and stay home. But I had a lot of employees that were still coming into the office because they saw their leadership there. They saw a lot of my senior leadership team there as well as myself and my deputy. And so I sat down with my deputy on, on March 19th and I said, command decision, we're not coming in. We, we have to lead by example. We have to tell our employees it's acceptable to work from home and that we can do everything that we do in this office, we can do it from home. So we're gonna do that. So effective March 20th, we went home and we started operating in a virtual environment. And it was new to us. It was unusual. I mean, we'd used virtual environment before for training and things like that, but to actually do it on a day-to-day basis. And so I had to make some decisions about what we were going to do. And one of the first questions that came up, believe it or not, from several of our my leadership team was, 
we had some events planned. We had a CPO symposium planned. We had certain training events planned. Uh, and then we had regularly scheduled meetings, like my HCA council meetings, you know, head of contracting activity council meetings, my uh, quarterly all hands meetings, my procurement community town halls. And the first question was, well, are we going to cancel those? And I said, no. We're going to do everything that we do in an office. We're going to figure out how we're going to do it on screen and we're going to do it. And I'm going to be here every day. I'm going to turn this camera on every day. And that's what my deputy and I did. And we adapted to everything that we did in the office. And when I say everything, I mean everything, including drive-by meetings, right? You know how you walk by somebody's desk and you stop in and say hello? I actually did drive-by meetings. I would actually click on Teams. We were using Teams at the time. Click on Teams and call somebody up. That way they know it was me too, by the way. Um, but I would converse with people and joke around with people. And we did luncheons. We didn't, you know, we, were, we brought our own food. We had birthday celebrations. We uh, swore people in, our SESs. We swore them in online. Everything that we would do in an office, I said, we're going to adapt it. We're going to do it. And I got to tell you, it wasn't easy. We had to be creative. And it was hard being on every day on camera, especially when you're a people person. I like meeting people in person. I like being around folks. Uh, but we adapted to the environment. And, and I brought along the leadership team because I had people that were hesitating. They didn't really want to be in this virtual world. They'd rather pick up the phone and use it. In fact, one of the things that I did, I avoided the phone as much as possible. I really tried to use the virtual world as much as I could. So I really tried to avoid the conference calling bit and tried to stay focused on, let people see me, let's see each other, let's have a conversation, let's celebrate what we're doing and let's have a little bit of fun and always answer the questions of the employees. I, you know, uh, to me, it became very important to have my regular meetings with the staff. Um, I had quarterly all-hands meetings. I changed those to monthly. And the purpose of that was so that they would hear from me that there was no requirement for them to return to the office, that their safety and their health was the most important thing to me, that I'd asked all my managers to be as supportive and as flexible as possible to enable them to do their jobs while making sure that they could take care of whatever they needed to take care of at home because everybody was dealing with, you know, children from home, elder care and those kinds of things. So I really, I would say that what I, what I really did there was try to make sure that my staff had access to me, that they heard from me directly, that I was answering their questions, even if it was the same question from month to month, I answered it. And, and in the end, they really appreciated that. They felt the, the compassion and the commitment and the caring of their leadership team. And they really valued that. And they, I think they, they found what was otherwise probably a fairly traumatic experience for some became a little bit easier and a little bit more uh, adaptable. They could adapt to it. They could, they could identify with their leadership. Soraya, you, can you define what a great leader is or any leader that you have worked with in the past that, uh, comes to mind that taught you some important lessons or events that really made an impact on the type of leader you are today? So there, I worked with a lot of great leaders, I, well, people that I viewed as great leaders. And it wasn't any single one thing that they did. It was aspects of their leadership. I worked with leaders who were great communicators, and I worked with some that weren't. And so I learned as much from those that were not quote, great at their jobs as much as I did from those that were great. I have been influenced pretty much by every leader I worked for. That's a true and honest answer. And the moment I took my first leadership job, 
I decided that I was going to be the kind of leader I wanted to work for. In other words, I wanted to make sure that I was thinking of those things that were important to me as I came up through the ranks, because I started out as a GS4 clerk typist. Um, I changed careers, mid-career, and then came back into the procurement profession. So I've done a lot of different things, and I was always known to be creative, very direct. Uh, uh, I was the person that took on the challenges, you know, when, when there was a, a not-so-gracious project or the project that nobody else wanted to do, I might raise my hand and take it, because somebody's got to do it, right? And you can find you can find success in a lot of the interesting challenges that are out there. So I wanted to be the kind of leader that I always wanted when I was coming up, a leader that was always present and available, a leader that communicated good and bad, you know, in other words, told employees what they needed to know, even if it was painful to tell them what they needed to know. Um, a leader who was always open to, to hearing from their people directly, open to feedback and always willing to give feedback. Um, and most importantly, I wanted to be, and I hope, and I think I've been the kind of leader that stepped into a leadership role because it wasn't about me anymore. It was about my team. In other words, the greatest leaders that I met were not there for themselves. They were there for the good of the organization. They had a strategic view, a vision of where this organization could go. They cared about their employees. They cared about the careers that these folks were embarking in. They sought to be mentors, guides, to be good to their people. Um, and that's the kind of leader I always wanted to be, I aspired to be, and I believe I did become that kind of leader, where I focused on my people, my peers, my organization, my profession, and tried to make sure that I was as open and honest and accessible as possible to, to the folks that worked for me and the folks I worked with. You've had uh, you know, such an amazing 40-year span of career. Um, what obstacles and challenges did you encounter on a personal level that you had to overcome to become an effective leader? I mean, you started out, you, you mentioned as a GS4 in, in what was it, a, almost a typing pool, right? <laughs> and, and, and then your, you know, you, your, your last position, you headed up procurement of one of the largest agencies in the federal government. So. What kind of obstacles did you face and, and how did you uh, overcome them? Well, so interestingly enough, this was a profession that I think was fairly male dominated. So as I was coming up, that was probably one of the first obstacles that, that how do you break into those leadership roles? And for me, I think probably it was a little bit more challenging because I am very open. I am very direct. Uh, I am very honest. And so I had to learn to manage that. Um, I, I remember uh, one time I worked with an individual who said, you got to slow down a bit. I had a leader that actually said that to me after a meeting. He said, you can't always say what you're thinking in the meeting. You got to gauge the room. You got to learn to listen to people. And you need to understand other people's perspectives. And believe you me, that's the biggest challenge that you got to overcome. You have to overcome um, that thought that you know the answer. Even when you do, you know, there are times that you do know the answer. I'm an expert in my field. I'm a procurement expert. I grew up in this profession. So I sometimes know the answer, but I have to hold that back and listen to what others are thinking, especially when you're in a leadership role, because it is important to understand other people's perspectives, 
hear what drives them, what motivates them, because you're trying to influence them, right? We're in that meeting trying to come together to, to arrive at a conclusion to get something done. I have to understand their perspective. And I'm not going to get that if I'm blurting out the answers all the time. So I think that was probably one of the biggest challenges is learning how to do that, learning how to sit back and listen or at least do my homework before I walked into the room to understand the other folks' perspective so that when I came forth with my perspective, I took into consideration what was important to them so that I could inspire them and motivate them to do what I needed to get done or to join me in doing and accomplishing something. And a couple of things that I learned, people always like being a part of an initiative. So I do create initiatives to, to engage people, right? To, I always give it a cute name or, or, or call it a particular project and I give it a beginning and an end because when you're working on these endless things, it gets a little boring. But by saying, here's what we're gonna do, here's the outcomes we seek to achieve and this is our time frame for doing it, it always helped. And I, and I know that I drove a few people crazy because I would always say, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? And what, where, what are we trying to get to? What are we trying to get to? What's the outcome we're trying to achieve? It's an important question because I just don't want to do things for the sake of doing them. I've worked for a lot of managers that did that, right? By the way, I worked for a few leaders that would lay out things and we just did them for the sake of doing them. It's like, no, let's have a purpose. Let's make sure we know what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, and when we're going to finish it off and what that end product's going to look like. Because people want to know they accomplished something, right? That's what people care about. So I think my biggest challenge was that. It was, it was learning to listen, learning to study the room, learning to understand the other player's perspective, and then making sure I ingested that all in and then turned it back around to make sure that I could move my organization, my team forward, my projects forward. And, I, and in that, I was very successful. I'm speaking with Soraya Correa, former Chief Procurement Officer, Department of Homeland Security. After the break, we'll discuss leadership, decision-making, and communication, and why it's important to have the right combination. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Soraya Correa, former Chief Procurement Officer, Department of Homeland Security. So, Soraya what is the most important type of decisions you can make as a leader of your organization? I mean, there's many different types of decisions and, you know, it, leaders can really, you know, prioritize decisions different ways. Do you have a philosophy around that? So any decision that impacts your employees, your team are probably the most important decisions you make. And I, I say that very sincerely. Um, because all those decisions go to everything else that you do, right? Anything that I do with my team, my staff, the kind of training, the decisions I make about their work locations, how they accomplish their work, et cetera, what policies and procedures we put in place, they impact ultimately what we do, which is deliver on the, on the mission, delivering on the mission, whether that mission was DHS, INS, you name it. So I believe that decisions that impact your employees are probably the most important ones that you do. Um, and I keep emphasizing that. And I've always emphasized that. The other decisions that we make are, are not always exclusively ours to make. So the example that I give is when you're managing in a crisis, whether it's the pandemic, a border surge, a hurricane response, whatever those decisions are. 
Um, typically, you're going to have a group of advisors. Sometimes you're going to bring your entire leadership team in, depending on what we were doing. Uh, but sometimes I had two or three select advisors, three, three, two or three select leaders that I would call in and say, hey, here's the situation. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? How are, how are we going to handle this? And then based on that conversation, we would bring in the rest of the leadership team. So it's all in um, bringing the organization forward to be responsive, proactive. Uh, one of the things that I really pushed very hard when I first started at, at DHS as the chief procurement officer, and, I, and by way of background, I should mention, I had been at DHS for 18 years, because this is the beginning of the department, and I worked the two components and twice at headquarters. This last time was my second time at headquarters. So I knew the organization, and I knew kind of some of the issues that we confronted. And I think it's extremely important that, you know, when you're managing in, in, in any situation that you, you make sure your organization is proactive. It is my job as a leader of any team to know what's coming down the pipe, even the unpredictable. We know hurricane season's around the corner and we know how we respond to hurricanes, right? So let's be ready. And I remember that when I first started as the chief procurement officer, we were typically issuing our emergency uh, authorization memos for FEMA on the day of the hurricane, you know, the day that the emergency was declared. By the time I left, we actually had the memos as soon as we knew a hurricane was out there. We had them ready to go so that I had already signed them and somebody just had to date stamp them. That's an example of being proactive, not being reactive, uh, making sure that we knew we had all our codes set up in the system. We already knew what we were going to do for, for FEMA. They knew exactly who they needed to call, what time they needed to call. You know, They knew how to get in touch with me if they needed an emergency response decision, if they needed me to approve a procurement on the fly, or if they needed me to review something, or if they just needed me to participate in a meeting. So my point is we went from sometimes being very reactive to moving forward to be proactive. And I think that's an extremely important part of being a leader is making your organization as responsive, as thoughtful, and as proactive as possible so it doesn't get taken by surprise. You talked about reading the room. You talked about uh, bringing in advisors. Um, you know, there's times when a leader needs to make a decision. There's times when you make a decision by committee. Um, yeah. You know, do you have uh, a style that you normally use uh, to actually make that decision? Um, you know, the outcome of, you said, like the result that is going to be what you're going to work towards? Yeah. Um, so I always look at the situation. I grew up in emergency response. My first job at the Naval Sea Systems Command, I worked for Navy Diving and Salvage. We were an emergency response organization. And so I credit that job for kind of training me to think in an emergency response mode. Um, in fact, one of the last projects that I worked on there was the recovery of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Um, so that should give you an idea of the kind of work that we were doing. And so I've, I've learned that sometimes you're going to make a decision on the fly, but you got to keep your options open. And what I try to do is make sure that I understand the situation or I understand as much as I can about the situation and immediately start bringing people into the discussion, whether those people are my boss, my peers, or my employees, my, my, my direct reports, or even employees in the organization. I'm not afraid to reach out to get the facts and information so that I can make as informed a decision as possible. But the one thing I will say, I don't hesitate to make a decision. And that's an extremely important point. When you're in a leadership role, and especially when you are hit with a crisis, 
you have to be willing to make decisions and you have to be willing to stand by those decisions. And you also have to have the courage and the fortitude to acknowledge if that wasn't the right decision and adjust and, and redirect or change course. And those are things that I was always willing to do. So, um, so I guess what I'm saying is I knew which decisions I needed to make. I knew when to bring folks in. And sometimes when I made a decision and I didn't bring somebody in, I also knew how to say, hey, I'm sorry, I left you out of the conversation. Let me go find you, get in here. Um, and I've done that once or twice, right? Some of my peers, I go, mm, I, I should have had you in the room. Let's, let's talk, sorry about that. Um, look, it, it's we gotta get a job done. And when you work in an organization like DHS, where you know our job is protecting the homeland and we respond we respond to all manners of crises, you know, uh, whether law enforcement, human or security threats or, or personal threats, threats to people. People's lives matter. And, and you have to understand that. And when you when you step into a role of being a leader in the organization, you have to respect that mission, understand it and make sure that you're doing everything to deliver on that mission every day. And I will tell you, that is a word that my employees heard probably more often than they wanted mission, mission, mission. We're here to accomplish something and it's extremely important. As your focus and timeline horizons change as you become more senior, I mean, you started as a GS4 uh, and it, then you headed up, you know, like I said, one of the biggest uh, agencies uh, in, in the federal government, DHS. So ha has it changed? Yeah, yeah, you, you adapt as a leader. You have to, well, you have to. You're not gonna run a, a basically uh, an organization like the procurement line of business for the Department of Homeland Security, the same way you ran your little procurement team that was, you know, probably, you know, running a, a couple hundred million dollar procurement. Um, one of the things that I find about leadership is you start letting go. You got to start letting go. You got to surround your people. You got to surround yourself with people that you trust who are experts at their areas and you gotta let them do their job. You gotta delegate. Um, that doesn't mean you don't check in with them. That doesn't mean you don't converse with them. That doesn't mean that you don't uh, uh, mentor and guide them, but it does mean that you let go. That decision is not mine to make. And one of the things that I probably uh, am most proud of for people who know me, I, I'm a little stubborn, a little pigheaded uh, at times because that's the nature of the beast. Um, and I. And I am a contracting officer at heart. You know, I could, I would love to be at the table negotiating that deal. And so sometimes when I would engage in conversations with my team, I'd ask very pointed questions. And then at the end of the conversation, I go, but it's your decision to make. And that's an extremely important point. It's good to have that conversation. It's good to generate that thought because I want to have confidence in what they're doing. And I want them to have confidence in what they're doing, right? And so by having the conversation about the procurement, understanding what they're doing, why they're going about a certain way, extremely important. But at the end of the day, I would always look at them and go, but it's your decision to make. It doesn't matter what I think. It's what you want to do. How do you want to do this? Make sure that you're doing the right thing for the right reasons and that you understand the risks that you're taking and how to mitigate those risks. At this stage of your career, what are your thoughts about managing versus leading? I just, what you just said was, there's a real difference between that, that nuance of what you just said. So <laughs> tell me the difference between managing and leading and what it has meant, especially as you became more senior. So the way I distinguish between a manager and a leader, a manager tells you what to do, can sometimes even tell you how to do it. 
They even probably know how to do it themselves. They could do it themselves. A leader inspires you and motivates you to do something, to go beyond what you probably are willing to do, to try something new and different. It is not the job of the leader to tell you the how. It's the job of the leader to tell you where we're trying to go, right? So I always used to describe it as, I'm here to tell you that we're going to go conquer that mountain. You, my leadership team, are here to tell me and tell your team how you're going to get there. And my other job is to make sure that I try to remove the obstacles out of the way or help you see what some of those challenges or impediments might be and help you navigate them. I think the job of the leader is just that, to inspire, to motivate, to instill confidence in the team, to, to bring that team up and out so people see what that team is doing and enable them. And the other job of a leader is to take responsibility, whether it goes good or bad, it's my responsibility. And when it goes bad, I definitely take the hit for it. When it's good, well, you, you lavish that praise on your team. You want to motivate them, you want to inspire them, but you want to give them top cover. That's what I believe is the difference between a manager and a leader. A manager provides more direction and day-to-day -day guidance. A leader is really there to inspire, to instill confidence and motivate. I'm speaking with Soraya Correa. Former Chief Procurement Officer, Department of Homeland Security. Coming up next, we'll talk about being a leader that is trying to lead through change. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking to Soraya Correa, former Chief Procurement Officer, Department of Homeland Security. Uh, you know, uh, what is your strategy to keeping your team focused on sometimes what most people think is impossible? I mean, you have faced some, I mean, in your career and the, just the time that you were at DHS, you were talking about some of the biggest emergencies and, and biggest challenges that the U.S. has seen. How do you keep your team focused? I mean, keeping procurement on track during these times of, of stress uh, couldn't have been easy. It, it wasn't, um, but having come from that world and having you know worked through many crises myself as a contracting officer, as a contract specialist, and so on, I understand what motivates us. And and I think what's important is, and this is the role of a leader. I have to help people see themselves in that moment. They have to understand their role, their responsibilities, and why what they do matters. What's important about their job? Why are they there? How do they fit into that bigger picture? And that was something that I stressed uh, throughout my 18 years in, in, at DHS, but even throughout my career, I always tried to find where do we fit into this picture? What is our job? How do we do this? How do we work with our program officials? Um, I believe that I was successful working with my program officials when, as I was coming up as a contract specialist and contracting officer, but even more so when I came into a leadership role because I was always asking the question, what do you need? Why do you need that? How are you going to use that? What's the program that's being impacted? How is this important to the mission? When I understand those things, I can convey that back to the team. And it was one of the things that my team heard a lot from me. What was our mission? What, what was our focus going to be? Why was this important? And, you know, a word that I haven't used much that's extremely important to our profession, compliance. Everything that we do is surrounded by rules and regulations, and that can sometimes, some people think, uh, conflict with what you're trying to do in the mission. I don't believe that. I believe that we can use our rules and our regulations, that we can find the flexibilities. 
and interpret those regulations to ensure we fulfill the mission. And so I always sought to help people understand how to strike that balance, how to make sure they could get it done, and to talk to them in these moments of crisis, whether it was you know, uh, government shutdowns, whether it was a hurricane, whether it was border issues, uh, uh, whatever, whatever the situation was, I sought to remind people why we were there, why what we did was important, and what was the priority for us, right? Is the priority to meet a deadline, or is the priority to make sure we get that procurement right? Is the priority to make sure that we dotted that I and crossed that T in the memo that goes in the file? Or is the priority to make sure we get that contract awarded and then we'll come in on the weekend and write the memo to the file? Those are the kinds of things that a leader has to do, especially when you're in a mission-driven organization. So let's peel that apart a little bit. Mm -hmm. When you took the lead role at procurement at DHS, you mentioned that you, you reminded folks, you walked in the room, I think you said, and you said mission first, which is very unusual. Uh, for a procurement official, all right, because it, it, it's it's natural to fall into uh, looking at the calendar and making those deadlines. Tell me about how and what you did to lead your team to find new ways to meet uh, to help DHS, for an example, meet mission objectives. Because that doesn't seem easy to me. Yeah. So you create initiatives that are about meeting the mission objectives and getting our job done, marrying those two things together. So I'll tell you about a couple of initiatives that I stood up. First, I stood up a program called, or, or, or an initiative called Acquisition Innovations in Motion, or AIM. Uh, great acronym. We're going to take an AIM at the problem, right? And our goal there in Acquisition Innovations in Motion was to bring about innovation in procurement. Yeah, uh, yes, I said innovation in procurement. Let's be innovative about what we do. I have long held that within the four corners of the federal acquisition regulation, we can accomplish a lot if we interpret it properly. And changing rules and regulations is probably the hardest thing to do. It's, it, you know, it takes a lot of time. So if you want to accomplish something, you got to learn how to read those regulations, interpret them, understand what's going on with the courts, how protests are being decided, et cetera, and then adopt that flexibility and help people understand that. So Acquisition Innovations in Motion was aimed at just that, to make sure that we were looking at our business processes to see if we were doing them in the most efficient and effective manner, where were we finding pitfalls, meaning a bottlenecks in the system, and how do we overcome those bottlenecks? And then how did we improve communications? How do we tell our customer, our employees, our peers, our stakeholders that are outside that circle, like GAO, uh, IGs, and Congress, how we're going to do our work? How do we communicate? How do we talk to industry? How do we get industry to help us improve our business processes? And I'm not talking about giving them a task order to tell me how to do my job. I'm talking about getting feedback and finding ways to incorporate that feedback into our business process. So AIM was one of those such initiatives. The second initiative I stood up, the Procurement Innovation Lab. In the Procurement Innovation Lab, my goal was to bring about a group of people, small group. I start out with one person. Today, I think they have a total of maybe eight people. Um, the idea there was, how do we get people to think about the best ways to do things, take some smart risks to improve our business processes when it comes to evaluating proposals? It could also lend itself to business processes like reviews, but I was mostly focused on the procurement. How do I make that procurement go by a little bit faster make sure that my program office has greater confidence in the selection that they're making 
And more importantly, that I've brought in the right vendor, the right service, the right product to fulfill that mission need. So the Procurement Innovation Lab is all about smart risk taking and finding more creative and innovative ways to engage with industry throughout the procurement process and ensure that we make effective contract awards. The pill has taken off. A lot of other agencies are emulating that. A lot of our initiatives under AIM, Acquisition Innovations in Motion, have taken off. Uh, we did reverse industry days so that we can learn how industry sees us and how they react to us. And we can learn from that and adapt our business process to that. My goal was always, let's make sure that I'm finding a way to help you get your job done, to make sure that my folks have the resources necessary to do their job and fulfill mission. And by doing that, by, by giving them that opportunity to tell me what they needed, how they needed, to help them learn and understand how people perceive them, how people perceive our business processes, and where all the flexibilities are in our business processes and how we can use those to our favor. That's how we get that message across about you got to get the mission done, but we're also here to do procurement and we got to get both things right. You did something very innovative uh, on that lab. You brought in, uh, on the technology side, I know you brought in folks from Silicon Valley and had them sit across a desk and provide constructive criticism in this best way I put it, uh, and feedback and talk to them about innovative ways that they could, uh, you know, uh, turn up the, the clock speed, you might want to say, uh, on, on being able to leverage technology, which would be, you know, just crucial to mission. So that's a big change from approach. So how did you get people to adapt to that change? I mean, and open their eyes that not only did they hear about these things, but they could see how they could change their daily activities to actually embrace that opportunity to drive change. So first, it's about communication. It's helping them understand what we're trying to achieve, the smart risk taking, the flexibilities, the adaptability to it. But the most important thing is by providing the leadership support, by looking them in the eye and saying, if you're successful, you own that success. But if you fail, if something goes wrong, that's on me. I take that for you. I will stand up and defend you even when it goes wrong. Why? Because people are not going to take chances if they're going to get left out in the cold. And I had an opportunity to, to demonstrate that, to demonstrate my ability to support it was called the Flash Procurement. Many people heard about it. It was about, about $1.2 billion procurement uh, for uh, 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 cloud uh, development services. Um, we did everything right. The procurement was really good, actually. But then when we got to the evaluation phase, we fell back on old processes on how to document. And we got wrapped around the axles. We got into what I call protest hell. Well, you, you get a protest, you settle it, and then you get another, not settle it, but you get a decision, and then you get protest again, and you get protest again. And I said, enough, done. We're getting off this bandwagon. I'm canceling the procurement. Many people thought, there she goes, bye, you know, big dating game kiss. They're going to get rid of the CPO. No, I stood up along with my boss and said, we take responsibility for that. We, we failed. We failed in this latter part. It didn't go right, and that's on us. But you know what? We learned a lot of things from this procurement, and we're going to come back, and we're going to do it again. And we gave awards to our people. We sang their praises, and then I put them on, on a webinar to explain to people what we did well and what we didn't do well. And you know what? My head's still attached to my neck. I'm still here. Um, and from that, we learned a lot. 
And we started developing a lot more processes, including how we better document our evaluations. Um, but that's an example. You got to stand up with your people. You got to be willing to support them, especially when things go bad. And by the way, I, I want to emphasize, I use the word fail because a lot of people hate that word. They hate that word in government. It's a scary word. I get it. But failure is something that goes right along with success. You're going to fail a few times before you're successful. If you're not, you're probably not learning much. You're listening to Leaders in Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking with Soraya Correa, former Chief Procurement Officer, Department of Homeland Security. Next, you'll find out Soraya's advice to the next generation of federal leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legends. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Soraya Correa, former Chief Procurement Officer, Department of Homeland Security. Now, you've done this for uh, 40 years, getting people to adapt to change. How did you develop your team to have the skills, uh, be able to grow in their careers? Uh, you know, you, met, you mentioned mentoring at least five times during this show. So tell me a little bit about why that's important and, and how you were able to lead and implement especially around change and, and, you know, and, and adversity. Thank you. That's a great question. And, and, you know, I think every leader knows that the most important asset that you have are the people that work for you, that the workforce that you bring to the table. And so my focus and my emphasis was always on making sure that I had the right folks uh, receiving the right training, the right skill sets, and giving them the right resources to make them successful, considering what they, what's important to them uh, from a career development standpoint, as well as from a learning standpoint. Not everybody learns at the same pace, not everybody does the same things, and not everybody is interested in, in uh, the same approaches. And so what I tried to do was to create a multitude of programs to help our workforce. So I'll give you a couple examples. Um, I stood up an agency-wide, a procurement line of business-wide mentoring program called EDGE, Education, Development, Growth, and Excellence. This was a mentoring program designed to bring folks from across the components, headquarters, in the field, D.C., together to mentor one another, to learn from one another, to understand, because all too often people sit at headquarters and they think they got a unique set of problems and people sit in the field and they think they got a unique set of problems. No, we're all dealing with the same challenges, the same issues, and we can learn from one another. But the other thing that does is it instills that, that message of mission between the employees, because now you're going to learn about somebody at CBP, or you're going to learn about somebody at ICE, or somebody at FEMA, and you're going to teach it to somebody at headquarters. That's the important thing, because it was like a cross-training, but a cross-mentoring program. Very proud of that program. Uh, very successful program, a lot of great mentors and protégés, and people just learn from one another, and they really loved it. And we even introduced a speaker series where I brought in leaders from within and outside of government to talk to them so they could learn from them. Another program that I stood up just before I left, a couple of years before I left, Procurement Connect, basically a chat room for the procurement community of the Department of Homeland Security, where people could connect with one another, ask each other questions, talk about topics, share learning, et cetera. We called that Procurement connect. 
kind of like um, uh, not not quite as elegant as a, a Facebook or a Twitter, but an opportunity for procurement folks to talk to one another. And of course, our intern program. Our intern program started in 2008, Acquisition Professionals Career Program, APCP. It's a three-year program where we bring in interns, people who have either graduated from college or people in mid-level careers or people even coming back uh, for military duty to work for the Department of Homeland Security and kind of learn acquisition from a DHS perspective. The program was so successful, it started out for contracting professionals. We expanded it to other acquisition professions. But within that program, I created two new elements. One was called Warriors to DHS. You've heard of the VA program on Warriors to VA. Well, we went and partnered with the VA to make sure that folks that were coming back from deployment got an opportunity to learn the acquisition profession. And so we worked with them and I was very proud of that program. We were on our second cohort, third cohort actually, when I left, but bringing warriors to DHS because we do have to take care of our veterans. The second such program I called the Student Hire Intern Program. This is where we went to colleges and universities and, and try to get students to come in and learn about procurement. Because I don't think that often people really understand what procurement in government is in their, in their formative years, you know, when they're in college. So we went out and hired folks and they come in part time uh, during one semester and they get to work in our environment, learn about procurement and be productive members of society, really be part of the team. And if they're successful and want to come back and join our APCP, they're welcome to do so. Very happy to report that the program was very successful. We started with a five-person pilot. We've expanded that program, and we've actually hired our first ships that have come in as part of the APCP program before I left. So these are just some of the initiatives. And of course, you know, I had learning cafes and all kinds of training sessions and different things that we tried to do to make sure that we were giving our folks the tools, the resources that they needed uh, to learn their profession, to be great at their profession, and to be able to address themselves to the needs of the organization as we adapted and grew. So first, I want to thank you for your 40 years of, of public service. Uh, you know, uh, today, recruiting uh, young professionals into uh, have a love for the mission and work for the government, because let's face it, um, a lot of the careers outside of the government can be more lucrative. Um, you have to fall in love with the mission. So how, how do we get um, young folks to see this huge opportunity? I know I have four kids and I have told each one of them, you should start off working for the government because the amount of responsibility you get up front sometimes is much larger than you get. And yes. you get to learn and you can really develop those skills that it, then if you decide to leave, it's fine. So how do we recruit? How do we get that next generation uh, to lean into the mission and, and, and to see the, the, the wonders of what is available when you're doing public service? So first of all, we got to turn off the news because they always tell you the bad part of it, right? No, uh, all kidding aside, we got to get out there and talk about it a lot more. We got to talk about the different professions that are available in the federal government, what it means to be part of a mission support organization. A lot of people, you know, when they think of mission, they think about becoming the law enforcement officer, the border patrol agent, I don't know, the secret service agent, because those those are very attractive. But in the business side, the, the mission support side, whether it's HR, finance, logistics, security, there are a lot of professions. That, oh, I forgot to mention procurement. There are a lot of professions out there that lend themselves to the folks that are coming through that school of business. And so I think it's extremely important that we get out there and talk about the profession and talk about what we've learned and what we've been able to do. When I tell folks, I've worked on the Space Shuttle Challenger, who would have thought that 
a contract specialist was involved in that project, or that I went on to work for NASA headquarters later on in my career. The two things were not even tied together. And I got to work on the space station and I took a trip to Russia to buy equipment for the space station. Those are the kinds of things you get to do. And I did that when I was a GS-14. I wasn't even an SES. And so my, my point is that in government, you're right. You develop certain skills and you have the ability to influence certain decisions that you might not otherwise get when you go work on the private industry side. And here's the thing that I think is, is really exciting about government today. The, the, the retirement system is far more flexible. So you can come in and out. You can go to industry and come back. You can go back to industry and come back. It's a little bit easier to move around. You know, when, when you're under the old retirement system, you, you can lose some, some advantages. So I think there's great flexibility. The careers are, are phenomenal. I mean, the things that we do and the agencies, every agency has a mission. Every agency is trying to accomplish something for the taxpayer, for the American citizen, for the country. And government service is serving the country. And I think it's a great honor. It's a privilege. Uh, you know, I, I, look back on my career and I just feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity to serve in the profession and to serve in my federal government and work at all those agencies. And I'd do it all again. I really would. So what's next? Uh, what's, your, what's, your, what's your next chapter? I don't know. Uh, right now I'm relaxing and enjoying retirement. It's, it's, a, it's a novel concept to get up in the morning and not have anything to do. I was used to just getting on screen, even sometimes on the weekends. Uh, but right now, I'm just taking it easy and enjoying life and exploring all the different opportunities that are available out there. But two things I know uh, that I'm always going to be very loyal to my government and seek ways to, to, to always promote what is good about our government, because too many people try to talk about what's bad about our government. I like to talk about what's good about our government and this profession. I am deeply committed and devoted to this profession. Uh, I, I care about the acquisition community writ large, and I care about the acquisition workforce and how we train them, how we educate them, and how we move them uh, through the system, how we help them grow and develop. So I hope to continue to work in the acquisition profession in some way, shape, or form, hopefully influencing those. I'm still mentoring folks. I actually have a few mentor uh, meetings coming up because I, I can't let go of that. I, I believe in mentoring. I'm very passionate about mentoring and helping others and uh, hopefully inspire and motivate folks to continue to move on, be in those leadership roles because our government deserves the best. Well, we're, we're very grateful for the, your 40 years of public service. And I need to ask you, your, your career and your success has had, it truly been inspirational. Um, any pearls of wisdom you would have for that next generation? So first, I want to thank you for your 40 years of, of public service. And I need to ask you, your, your career and your success has had, it truly been inspirational. Um, any pearls of wisdom you would have for that next generation? Yeah. Um, first, I think it is important to make sure you know what you want to do, that you do something that inspires you and motivates you to get up every day and go out and do it. I've spent 40 years doing what I love to do uh, and working with people that I just thought were incredible and phenomenal for agencies that I thought had great and exciting missions. So I think it's extremely important. Decide what you want to do. Don't be afraid to try new things. Don't be afraid of the challenges, right? Uh, earlier I said, 
Um, I often raised my hand when there were projects that other people just didn't want to take on because they were difficult or they were challenging or they were hard or they weren't popular. So I took on some of those. And through by doing that, I developed a reputation for being a problem solver, for being a go-to person. And then last but not least, remember, this is our country. This is our government. We make it better by being a part of it. And so I invite people in to come work in our federal government, be a part of the solution. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll find it invigorating and rewarding. And here's a little tidbit that I'll tell you, because I've moved around and worked in several agencies. I always found great people everywhere I went, dedicated, committed to the job. And uh, I just can't thank them enough for the job that they do every day. Well, thank you. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. We've been honored to have our guest today of Soraya Correa. Soraya, I just want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some seriously good advice. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege. I really appreciate it. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com.